nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is on the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Good morning. It's good to be with you here this morning. Um, before we get started, uh, let's, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your mercies, for your kindness, for your goodness to us. We're grateful that you have brought us here. We ask now as we turn to your word that you will help us, that you will direct our thoughts. Father, we're tempted to uh, bring some distractions with us. Help us to put those down in light of your word and your glory. I pray for myself, Lord, that uh, as we turn to your word that I would uh, say what you meant and not mislead. And I pray that uh, should anything I say not be in compliance with your word that you would leave it unheard we ask your holy spirit to help us in this we are not disciplined enough to either speak or listen well and so we'll need you to guide us and may the spirit who gave this word to people long time ago through inspiration also be with us as we look at it to give us understanding and clarity we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've just heard Psalm 1 read to you, and that uh, in that you see that life is kind of depicted as a, a plant there. And this is an image that runs throughout Scripture, and it's a, a life well lived. And it's a, the metaphor is a plant, and you see this plant show up in different places. Sometimes it's a different plant. Sometimes it's a tree. Sometimes it's a large bush. Sometimes it's a grapevine. But it shows up often, and it talks about the life that we live. In different places, it, it emphasizes different things. In Psalm 80, the emphasis is on the Lord who planted the plant. In Jeremiah 17, it's the thriving of the plant as one who trusts God. In Psalm 1, as you just heard, it's, it's found in the word of the Lord. In Psalm 128, it depicts a family that's blessed by God. In John 15, it's the life-giving connection between Jesus and the rest of the plant. In Galatians 5, it is the believer's character. And the emphasis is different, but it's the same illusion of life as a quality of manifestation, what, what we do, how we live, what we're grounded in, how we have our life. And the, the interesting aspect of it, I think, is that a plant is meant to grow. And I think that's kind of a, an ongoing theme with, when the plant metaphor is that uh, a plant is grow and it's supposed to do something. Um, plants are supposed to produce something. And uh, if you think about it, a plant is not supposed to produce something for itself. For example, if a plant produces fruit, typically people get to eat the fruit, not the plant, right? Now, I know there's plant reasons why plants produce 
fruit, but the people are the, generally the ones who in, enjoy it. And for example, in Galatians 5, if you take this out of biology and into Christian life, Galatians 5, it depicts the character of the believer in, in terms of fruit, love, joy, pa- peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Well, as a person has those types of things, who benefits from it? It's, it, who benefits from the love? Who benefits from the goodness? Who benefits from the self-control? Well, it's primarily not the pit person, him or herself, but those who are nearby. Scripturally, the good life consists of blessings of God to you, which others get to enjoy. Now, I personally noticed this and, and it came out, so I had to change some of the parenting I was doing. Because the way I looked at maturity at one point, and how I talked about it with my kids, you know you get in these conversations with teenagers and, and 20-year-olds, is just how adult are you kind of things, you know? And, and this comes up in different ways. And, and just how grown up are you? And typically, uh, my kids were more optimistic on that question than I was at different times. And so it was a good conversation. But I used to say something like, you're mature when you are self-supporting, when you're using your own resources and you take care of your own responsibilities and you get to have the benefits of your own efforts. And I would call that maturity. And, um, but there's some merit to that, but it's not biblical. And I came to realize that's not a biblical definition because maturity is not supporting yourself. That's not maturity. Biblical maturity is when the blessings of who you are and what God has done for you and how you have managed and grown in those blessings are to the benefit of other people, right? So, so therefore, maturity is measured in how you care for other people, right? Your maturity is, is measured in your influence and what the quality of influence is in family and friends, employees, employers, who flourishes because of your maturity. So wisdom does not protect and provide for herself Wisdom protects and provides for others. So if we are the plants, who benefits from our fruit? Well, if you would, turn with me to 1 Samuel 25. And this morning I want to think about a very impressive person in Scripture who I think shows a lot of biblical maturity, is a plant that produces much fruit, and her name is Abigail. She has deep roots, strong branches, and much fruit to the extent that she prevents a tragedy and literally saves lives. Now, you know this book is a selective biography about David, and it describes how he is brought to the throne of Israel. And much of the time, while, he, while this book is going on, David is on the run from King Saul. However, uh, chapter 25 is a second of three stories in which David is actually on offense. In chapters 24, 25, and 26, David shows you what he is like when he has options and while he's holding all the cards, okay? Because it's easy to cry out to God when you're in trouble, right? When you're, when you're overmatched. But these stories are going to ask, what does a faithful person do when they have resources and have power? And we're going to see here that sometimes that person needs to be saved from themselves, really. Uh, 
And so I would just want to start in verse 1, and we're just going to work our way through. Our methodology is just to read a few verses, and then I'll comment on them. So starting with verse 1, it says, Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him, and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was, this is an aside, now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. That David heard in the wilderness, Nabal was shearing his sheep. So, with the loss of Samuel, Israel lost a good and godly man, sort of moral leadership, the conscience of the nation. And uh, I'm not going to dwell on, on him today, but it was a huge loss. And he was specifically a mentor for David. And so David has a huge uh, figure out of his life at this point. And after Samuel's death, David moved a bit southward from where he was around Paran. And right off, he introduces us to Nabal. And one, it's, he's one of the main characters in this story. And it gives a description of him actually before we get his name. Look at his reputation. He has sheep. He has goats. This is a measure of wealth. This guy had many herds. He's not just rich. He is very rich. Okay. Moreover, we're catching him at a good time. Sheep shearing was a time of, of a highlight on the calendar, really. Uh, all his workers would gather and bring the animals into town from whatever pastures and in the mountains they were at. They, where they were pasturing, they bring them in. There's a, this process of work to do, but it's a feeling of celebration that everybody's together. Plus, it's a time when you're making money. When you get to count and, and imagine what all these sheep are going to turn into money. And so uh, the workers are getting paid the bulk of their pay at this time. And um, the shepherds love getting out of the mountains and back to people. There's, there's eating, drinking, enjoyment. It's a great time for everybody. Now, after noting his wealth, we get his name. It's Nabal. And this name had meaning. In Hebrew, the word Nabal means fool or folly. And it, <laughs> that's a great name to have, right? It describes a person who lacks understanding or even the capacity to understand. And basically, fools are stuck in their foolishness, and you can't tell a fool anything. And this is some bad foreshadowing if your name is Nabal. Okay? Now, he's probably not named fool by his parents. Uh, the Old Testament, you know, you often have name changes along the way and that sort of thing. And um, it, sometimes it's based on something significant happening in a person's life or something like that. And so you can see people getting named after they after they're already have names. You can see places getting their name changed as well. And so Mabal was named, maybe have been named something else and yet proved to be a fool. And therefore, people started calling him this and underwent a name change. And in fact, uh, and sometimes people can have their names changed after they were dead. That's not his case. But uh, you don't really know how he got his name. The text doesn't say, doesn't, doesn't seem to care. I just want to introduce the fact that maybe his parents didn't quite name him that. I, wouldn't, I would think that would be a stretch, okay? But we, nevertheless, we've been introduced to a rich fool, right? A rich fool. Now, he does have one thing going for him in that he married well. All right, because it's already also we're being introduced to, to 
Abigail. In verse 2, it says Abigail was both intelligent and beautiful, and this seems to also be some, uh, some uh, foreshadowing of her characteristics that are going to be played out. So he's a Nabal, and she's the opposite, okay? And the writer doesn't spend a lot of time on her, but quickly gets back to her husband. And he's called harsh, evil, and a Calebite. Now, harsh and evil are easy and obvious, but a Calebite requires a little explanation. This means that he, Nabal, came from the family of Caleb. And this family had sort of a, um, uh, a reputation about it of being very persistent and stubborn. Now, that's a good thing when you need persistence and stubbornness. But when you don't need persistence and stubbornness, this is a default, right? And so uh, they were just known as just being very focused and stubborn people. In this situation, it's probably going to be an insult as you see it play out. So, so far, we have Nabal is a rich, harsh, evil, stubborn person who's married to a very intelligent and beautiful Abigail. Now, you don't know how an intelligent, beautiful woman ended up with a rich fool. But rich may have been a factor in it, okay? Because remember, in this character, in this, in this kind of uh, society, um, marriage was not as volitional as it is today, particularly for the woman. And sometimes there are property issues involved and monetary issues involved, and women just had fewer options in that kind of culture. So we don't know if Abigail decided to marry the fool or if she was kind of put in a position where she needed to marry the fool, had to marry the fool. But let's just say sometimes intelligent people are married to fools. It happens, okay? And, and it happened in this case. I'm not looking up at anybody as I say this, okay? So um, with that, that's Nabal's situation. David is going to send a delegation with a request. So verse 5 says, So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall say to him, Have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all you have. Now I have heard that you have shears, and now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything in all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, here's the request, therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we've come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. So David sends out these 10 guys, and notice verse 6, the greeting they were supposed to use is made up of peace, 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 three times peace, right? In Hebrew, it's shalom, shalom, shalom. And so in every, he's being very respectful, greeting and blessing. It's a very kind way to approach Nabal. And David has this reputation among different people. He's a big figure. And so he wanted, he wanted Nabal to know he's coming in peace. You know, some people might say David's an outlaw. Some of them might say he's too much of a warrior or a renegade. And so David wants Nabal to know that he's coming in peace. And he sends reassurance, a respectful greeting, and a request. And in verse 7, you have the request. The, uh, the context of the request is David and his men are hiding out in the, in the wilderness. They meet up with Nabal's shepherds and flocks. And being a band of outlaws on the run, David and his men could have stolen the flocks, could have killed the shepherds, could have sold the flocks, uh, his men could have just picked off a couple of sheep every night and ate them, I guess, if they wanted to. And yet David and his men did not mistrust Nabal, or did not mistreat Nabal's men, nor did they rob him in any way, take his property. 
And if you wanted to know if that was true or not, just ask the shepherds. They would tell you, right? And so verse 8 is the request for food. And it's not an unreasonable request. Uh, in that day, hospital, hospitality expectations encouraged Nabal to be generous. This was a generous time of year for him. He was rich. It was a profitable season, social obligation. This was not an outrageous request, though it is a lot of men. There are a lot of men here. And so uh, the other thing that happens is David calls himself Nabal's son, which is a close, subservient relationship. And, and so when you hear David say all this, you ought to hear a lot of politeness. You ought to hear a lot of humility. You ought to hear a lot of respect. So verse 9 is Nabal's reception of this, this group. It says, when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered from my shears and give it to men whose origin I don't know? So this is not a, a pleasant reception, obviously. Verse 9 says the delegation gave the message, like David said, and that uh, the first bit of problem was Nabal made him wait. He just made him sit there, and rather than just telling him outright. He's playing a little power game with them. And then he says no to the request, but he doesn't just say no. He insults them along the way. He says, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Now, by saying his father's name, he knew who he was, right? It was not a question of who, who is he. It's a question of who is he, right? And so he's insulting him, and he says, why should I care to pay attention to him? This is my stuff for my people. He's not one of them. And so he insulted him. And, and then he insulted him even more by saying, David's just another servant trying to get away from his master. And he's talking about David's relationship to Saul. That, that David is a renegade from Saul, an outlaw, uh, an outlaw in Nabal's eyes. And he was aware of the current events, and he understood that uh, David had been anointed by God. But there was also Saul who was anointed. And, and he's just saying, David's another servant who's in rebellion. Those aren't hard to find, right? And then lastly, he said, these resources are mine and for my people. He's not one of us. Now, if you want to compare him to somebody... Think back to uh, the book of Ruth and, and think of how Boaz treated Ruth and Naomi at the time where he had much wealth coming in. Totally opposite reception, right? And so um, this is David's response in verse 12. David's young men retraced their way back, retraced their way and went back. They came and told him according to the, all these words. David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. So um, this delegation comes back, tells David what, uh, what was said. And in, when we read verse 6, three times it was peace, peace, peace. But if you look at verse 13, three times it's sword, sword, sword. All right? So the tone has changed completely. David gets an attack party together, as well as a group that's going to watch the, the stuff and guard the stuff, uh, all their baggage. And, and David is mad and leading a small army to beat out of Nabal what he asked for politely, right? And, and then you get somebody else getting a report. In verse 14, uh, Nabal's wife, Abigail, gets a report. It says, 
But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent his messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by, day, by night and by day, and all the time we were with them, tending the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Now, so Abigail gets her report. Servant says not only everything that just happened, but also the background of David's request. And he, he reported Nabal's insult, but he also said how David had protected uh, all the men while they were out in the fields. David, David not only didn't steal from them, he protected them and protected the property. Now, one part of the verse says that evil is plotted against our master. And in Hebrew, this word evil can mean what we think of as evil, but it also can mean just destruction or catastrophe. And that's what it's meant here. That's what the servant is saying, is David's about to rain down catastrophe on us. This is going to be destructive. And, and he's not so much calling David evil or morally wrong in what he's doing. He's just saying it's going to be cataclysmic for all of us. And, and so, um, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say what, I'm not trying to guard David's reputation. You know, I'm not trying to say he isn't about to do something very wrong. He is about to do something very wrong. But that's not this guy's point. This guy's point is we're in trouble, okay? And uh, the, the, just as a kind of a side, when, when, when the servant calls Nabal worthless in verse 17, this requires an adjustment of how we think. And... Um, literally he calls him an idiom a son of Belial which means he's worthless but it means more than that it also means evil or wicked or foolish or unprofitable and the reason it kind of has this broad domain is because in Proverbs there's a correlation between people who are worthless people who are foolish and people who are sinful See, in our culture, we can kind of distinguish between the three. You can have your fools over here, you can have your worthless people over there, and you can have your sinful people in that corner. But in, in Proverbs, it's not like that. In Proverbs, these things overlap like a Venn diagram, right? And, and so when you call somebody a fool, t take an, an angry person. In Proverbs, they, the Proverbs call an angry person a fool. Well, an angry person damages other people, and Scripture marks it as a sin. And moreover, angry people will damage things in front of them. They're destructive to, to stuff as well. And, and the results of anger is, is worthlessness. It, it, it degrades and devalues and tears up everything in front of it right? And so in Proverbs, an angry person is a fool because he or she has anger bound up in their character and won't change. And, and, and the Proverbs have no problem calling this person worthless, wicked, and foolish, right? They're all, it, it all overlaps. And, and it's not just angry people. You could say that about a sexual tempter in Proverbs, a lazy person, a thief. They're all wicked, they're all foolish, and, and they all drag you down and the people that are around them down when they're around. And so uh, the biggest problem is that this is wrapped up in the condition of their heart. Proverbs famously says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
right? And, and that person is worthless, foolish, and a rebel all at the same time. And so, uh, for example, Proverbs 14, 16 says, one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. And this is Nabal. Nabal's foolishness is not just an issue of intelligence. It's a moral, ethical, relational situation. It has very practical ramifications, and they're all negative, right? And so Proverbs called the fool worthless because the damage of a fool only brings trouble to themselves and those who are around them. They bring collateral damage as well. And so um, this is what Abigail is experiencing. The fool that I'm closest to is about to destroy us all, right? And, and he's put them in trouble. Now, look at Abigail's response in verse 18. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, you go on before me. Behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. It came about as she was riding her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down towards her. So she met them. So Abigail responds with immediate action. She got busy. If it's food David wants, let's put the food on the table. And she cooked a lot of food, more than any one person could make. Um, David has 600 men. Uh, Abigail must have gotten a significant number of people on the job. It's probably only enough for one meal, but she's trying to get David's attention and, and halt what was going on. And so she did whatever she could to scrape it together. And verse 19 says that she didn't tell Nabal. Uh, one of the characteristics of a fool, obviously, is they're stumbled in their foolishness. And this fool was just foolish enough to stop her and keep her from doing this if he knew about it. Therefore, she decided to go around behind his back. Now, I don't, I don't think spouses ought to go behind each other's back, but that's what Abigail did. So verse 20 is how she gets David's attention. And now it's time for her to make her plea. And, and before she makes her plea, notice how David is coming into this conversation in verse 21. Now David had said, surely in vain I've guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned to me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and much more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. Now, David is firing himself up and he's firing his men up as they're riding in to meet Abigail and the food and the servants who are helping with the food. This is what David is thinking and saying to those around him. He's ranting. After all we've done for this guy, he's going to treat us this way. I swear to God, he literally says this, I swear to God that I'm going to wipe him out and everything attached to him. David has worked himself up into a white, hot anger. And that's what Abigail is walking into. And so in verse 23, she begins. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. So Abigail quickly demonstrates her humility with her posture. And then she gives the longest speech of the chapter, right? She speaks the, the longest here. In verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, 
On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. See, right off, she asked to be held responsible for the problem that occurred. She said, this situation is my fault. I'm the one that I want you to deal with. Put it on my account and let me fix this thing. And, and she agrees with David about the problem. Nabal's worthless. However, she believes in light of that, because she knew who her husband was, she should have been there when David's men showed up. If she would have been there, then things would have not gone that way. It would have been handled differently. And so there's no getting around what Nabal said and did, but she's pointing to her own culpability, right? Now, Abigail here is about to build a series of arguments that are just brilliant. And she's demonstrating why Scripture calls her intelligent. Listen to her in verse 26. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as, our soul li- as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Okay? This whole thing is in the form of a blessing. And she blesses David saying, may God bless you since God has restrained you from revenge and the sin of shedding blood on another. Now, wait a minute. Where did she get the idea that God had restrained David at all? She's blessing him for just the opposite of what he's got in mind, right? She goes on to say that since David had acted righteously, she hoped God made all his enemies like Nabal or like fools. Well, one or two things are happening here. Either she's playing ignorant, like she doesn't know David wants revenge by killing Nabal in the household, and she's thanking him for his patience and for his understanding, when in fact, she probably does know, it's almost certain that she knows from everything that's been said, that she knows David's nothing like that. He's coming with totally different intentions. And so she's appealing to his better nature and hope that it will overcome his, cert- his, his current thinking. She's thanking him for, for be, not being sinfully petty, even though he's being sinfully petty, right? Now, that might be what's going on. However, she might be thinking about something else. In the previous t- chapter, David wronged Saul. Excuse me. David was wronged by Saul, and David had an opportunity to take his revenge on Saul. He had the opportunity to harm Saul, and in that opportunity, he decided not to. He decided that's not what he should do to Saul. So maybe Abigail has heard this story and is honoring David for his restraint with Saul. And she's blessing him from the very characteristics that he had with Saul. That's exactly what I would like to see you demonstrate right here on us, is what you showed Saul. Maybe that's what she's thinking. Maybe she's hoping if she reminds David, he'll act in a parallel manner of what he did in the previous chapter. Now, it doesn't tell us what she was thinking about. Either way, it's a good idea. It's a beautiful statement. It's a smart approach to get him to try to overlook Nabal's offense. Then she goes on to explain the food. 
Now this gift which your main servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany, who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maid servant. So she's offering the food and apologizing again. And see, that's what happens when you attach yourself with fools. I don't know if you've ever been attached to a fool, but you find yourself apologizing for them and taking on their responsibilities, which they haven't handled well. That's what fools do to people around them. Hopefully you aren't the fool that did that to somebody else, right? But this is what, this is what it means to be related to a fool. You have to cover for them, right? And so she's reminding him of his purpose in the second part of 28. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil will not be found in all your days. This again is amazing. If I could paraphrase this, it says, David, I'm blessing you because the Lord is doing something great with you. You are fighting his battles. He's blessing you. And wonderful things are going to happen to you if you stay righteous and in the Lord's great plans and promises for your house. And that's why he's going to keep evil away from you, keep you from doing evil. Well, when she says this, doesn't that make David's anger look pretty, pretty petty, right? Pretty small. You know, he's supposed to be a warrior in the kingdom of God, and now he's out here trying to massacre fools, right? And she calls him back to what he should be about, right? David, should you let the offense of a fool be an invitation to sin? The answer is obviously no. And then she has another thought. Should anyone rise up to pursue you? And seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But, but the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. This is sort of a prayer that says, let God take care of those who threaten you. Let God have them. He will keep you alive and vindicate you. And, and obviously the implication is David doesn't have to vindicate himself. David doesn't have to chase down his enemies. God will take care of him. She's, she's approaching this with some of the best theology you could hear a person express in, in, in the Bible. It's the theology that David used to use with Saul. It's David's theology in Psalm 7 when he wrote, Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to the end, but establish the righteous. David's calling out for God to vindicate. Abigail's saying, David, let God vindicate, Right? And she's telling him the great, <laughs> this is like theological jujitsu. I mean, she's just, she's just perfect in this, right? She tells him what he already believes, but is not currently practicing. And she says more, verse 30, when the Lord does for my Lord, according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not be a cause of grief or trouble heart to my Lord, both having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. She points out the promises of God. God said David's going to rule the country. And when you look back on this, David, what do you want to see? You, do you want to be able to take the throne with a clean conscience, or do you want to look back on a massacre of a bunch of shepherds? You want to know that when the Lord brought you to the top, it was out without your manipulations, without your political murders, and without your petty revenge. You want a clean conscience, right? And, and so Abigail wants her, him to remember her when, he's, when he is 
on the throne. She wants to be in good favor with the king. So that's the end of her speech, and I just want to recap it here because this is amazing. Bless, she starts off, bless you for not avenging yourself in the past. God will honor you for that. Number two, forgive me for the wrong that my husband did. I should have been there to prevent it. Number three, God is blessing your house for your faithfulness to him, and he's keeping you righteous. Number four, God will continue to protect your life as he destroys your enemies. You don't have to do that for yourself. Number five, don't put yourself in a position where you'll have a guilty conscience when you take the throne. Therefore, don't do anything that will compromise your rise or rule. And number six, remember me as you rule, right? Those are her arguments boiled down. Again, I think they're genius. Now, here's, here's Abigail's dilemma. How do you confront a powerful person who has been insulted in order to keep them from retaliation? She planned how she's going to come at David. She was wise and took a humble disposition. She expressed theologically sound statements designed to persuade David, even though his mind was occupied with wrath and revenge. Moreover, she used some of the exact same arguments, almost down to the word that David had used himself previously, particularly in the very, the, the very last chapter when he told his men that they should not execute Saul. And so David knew what she meant, and he knew the right theology, and obviously as she was baking all of that food, Abigail was also thinking, right? She was thinking, and this is why scripture calls her intelligent. Verse 32 is David's response. Then David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed, are be, your, blessed be your discernment and blessed be you who have, had, who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not be left to Nabal in the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Before it was peace, 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 then it was sword, 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 and now we're back to peace. David responds well. Her words registered immediately. He realizes he was on the verge of murder and catastrophe, and uh, he's grateful for the warning. In verses 32 and 33, he thanks God because God sent Abigail. Abigail had the discernment that kept him away from murder. Therefore, he blessed her as well. In verses 36 through 38, we're not reading those, but Abigail goes home to find Nabal is unrepentant, and Nabal shortly dies in his foolishness. And then if you read on in verses 39 through 42, David quickly swoops in and marries the widow Abigail because he obviously knew a good thing when he saw it, right? And so I just want to take a a quick look at the characters here. Nabal in this story is sinful. He's a fool from beginning to end. He's not a fool because he made a prideful mistake. He's a fool because like the servant said to Abigail, you can't tell him anything. He won't listen. See, it's not just the initial problem he creates. It's the rejection of wisdom that a fool has. And all there is to Nabal is just money and foolishness. That, that's him. That's all you get with him. And, and let, let me repeat that Nabal is an example of the fact that fools, sinful fools, not only create problems, they create problems for those around them. Fools 
are hard on families and they hurt communities. Biblically speaking, David is the wise man in this chapter. Now, you wouldn't think that. But in Scripture, the definition of a wise man is not the person who won't sin. Wise people sin. But the fool is one who won't listen. The wise man is the sinner who will listen and who will stop. Proverbs 12, 15 says that the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man will listen to advice. And so in Proverbs, you tell a wise man it's a sin, and he stops doing it. You tell a fool that it's a sin, he keeps on until the next thing you have to do is beat the fool, right? That's the next step in dealing with a fool. And, and if you, you think about it, there's this lady, so not much authority in that culture at that time, who nobody knew. David didn't know who she was when she walked up. She had no personal authority in his life. This lady who has no personal authority, no obvious authority, was able to turn around a 400-man mob. How is that possible? Well, the way it's possible is she talked to a wise man. And he was wise, who was able to sin big, but nonetheless was listened to when he was confronted. But what about Abigail? Why look at her on Mother's Day? I mean, her children, if she had any, are not even mentioned here. You don't even know if she's a mother. Why look at her on Mother's Day? Well, Mother's Day is partly biological. Uh, Yeah, Mother's Day is partly biological. What I mean by that is a lady has a baby, and as a human being that is worth celebrating, we all celebrate when people have babies. That's notable. However, if you think about that, that's something that's not entirely in our hands. Some ladies don't have children for various reasons. They haven't, they can't, or aren't biologically a part of mothering. And therefore, typical biological mothering doesn't actually last a lifetime, really, even for those who are mothers. It's not a lasting condition in the sense that you think about mothering. There's nurturing, there's caring, and there's giving. Those are mothering as well, but those are not biological components because mothering is more than biological. It's character, it's capacities, it's components of mothering. You can nurture, care, and give as in a way of mothering. And so Abigail demonstrates that the qualities of biblical mothering should be valued, not just the biology of it, right? And, and, and so what we see here is that Abigail helps us deal with the function rather than the biology. And enough cannot be said about her. Her care, her industry, her responsibility, the risk that she takes makes her the obvious hero of the story. Her character just shines through the whole thing. She's the most righteous person in the story. And up front, the, the author told us she was intelligent. But this story demonstrates it. She's a resource for those who are in trouble. Isn't it interesting that the slave ran straight to her? Why is that? Because he knew. He knew. The servant came to her for help. 
She was intelligent. She knew what had to be done. She was industrious. She prepared the food. She was a great manager, organizing her servants to complete the task and get, down, get it down the road. She was doing all this and at the same time figuring out what needed to be said to David and how to say it. She was brave, not sending someone else, but personally taking the food to face an army. She showed David how wrong he was uh, uh, just about to be. And however, she does this in a humble manner so that she would be heard. Her temperament completely disarmed his wrath. She came to him with respect and not manipulation. Her good and practical theology was more logical and more moral than David's sinful thinking at that time. She practiced the godliness that David elsewhere prays about. She clearly understood the ways of God and the nature of his kingdom, and she was able to impress this upon David. And with the space of one chapter, she demonstrates as much good theology as anybody I know of. No wonder David snatched her up when she became available, right? And, and this is who she really was, right? She wasn't putting this on. After the danger is over, after the confrontation, after the fool was dead, when Abigail was a well-off widow, when David sent his messengers to ask about her, her response in verse 41 says this, she arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. She's still the same person. She wasn't just talking about humility, trying to manipulate David. It wasn't an act. When the circumstances changed, she didn't. And thus she saved a household. She saved her husband for a while, her servants, the workers, the property. She saved them all, and many benefited from her fruitfulness. Now, she's not the only savior. Let's not forget what David said, and let's not forget the main character of the story, who is God. The main point of this passage is the one often, re often repeated in this section of Scripture. Once again, God saves David. Once again, God saves David. Previously, God had saved him from being attacked. But on this day, God saves David from himself, from being a sinful attacker. And it's important to see that God saved David through Abigail's confrontation. God emboldened somebody with, with the right attributes to go to David, and God was the source of salvation. Abigail was the means of that salvation, right? She was the means of restraining David from his sin. So based on what I've, uh, I've seen here, what I've tried to express, I have an observation and a charge. The observation is that there are situations and aspects in which what needs to happen more naturally comes from feminine qualities rather than male ones. This is a nuanced argument because I'm not saying that only men have certain characteristics and women only those, yet I think Abigail is more easily heard by David because she addressed the crisis in a distinctive feminine manner. I don't think a man, even a righteous man, would have been heard like Abigail was heard at that point. There are situations in which more masculine expressions won't help as much as nurturing, humility, tenderness, and self-giving, which seem to come to women much easier than men. 
Paul says this better than me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul talks about some good influence he and some others had with the Thessalonians. But listen to the approach that was actually effective among the Thessalonians. He says in in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, it says, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we may have asserted our authority, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Paul is saying... I had the title, I had the authority, I had the position, but those are not the most valuable or influential approaches to the Thessalonians at this time. And what he means by that is roles and church structure are good and necessary. However, godly influence, helps, and spiritual health are not limited to church structure, nor titles, nor formal positions. What really helped the Thessalonians in that situation was marked by gentleness, caring, and a life-giving effort. The image Paul chose to reflect on that was like a mother. Paul is God's man saying some of the best aspects of God's work happen not as a person primarily defined in roles of authority, but in attributes that are more naturally feminine. Now, Obviously, men can be gentle, and gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, and all Christians are called to grow in their gentleness. Paul's not arguing against that. Paul was gentle among the Thessalonians. He demonstrated that masculine forms of gentleness, just as we saw Abigail demonstrate feminine forms of bravery, right? And, and so all, all these characteristics have their resources in our lives, yet there are some ways of doing things that are just more motherly, right? And so with that observation, here's my charge. Everybody, but particularly women, do not confine your efforts, your mothering, your ministry, your godly influence, your God-given resources to the people who are under 18 and living in your house. Be who you are for the benefit of all who draw near. Spiritually be a benefit in both in and beyond your house. Start with your house, but extend from there as well. Extend your righteousness and influence. And therefore, we have to get this straight. God uses his people to change his people. He uses godly, theologically correct, brave and honest people for the betterment of his people. Find those kinds of people like Abigail and listen to them. God works through those kinds of people. Yet as God uses you as a means, be God's means. And so we promote Christian growth and certainly uh, growing into Christ and becoming more Christ-like in person and character is important to us. Spiritually grow into that kind of person and be that kind of tree. Be the kind of tree planted by a stream who is God, whose roots go deep, so in the dry seasons, your leaves will flourish and you will still produce fruit. And don't forget that your leaves and your fruit are to provide shade and nourishment for others, for others, for those around you. Ladies, start with your own household, but do not stop there provide fruit for us all. Let's pray. 
Father, we're grateful for your mercies and your kindness. We're grateful that you have provided not only your word to instruct us, but, but even people like Abigail to demonstrate what it means to be righteous. For people like David, who will stop from foolishness and become the wise man making wise choices. You have not only told us about these things, but demonstrated through people. I pray for everyone here that you will send us out in your glory uh, better plants, <laughs> more mature, more fruitful, not for ourselves, but for those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.